0: Jasmine is the 43rd film written and directed by Woody Allen. Kate Blanchett stars as the titular Jasmine, a well-to-do woman who finds herself broke. Her financial criminal husband, played by Alec Baldwin, is no longer in the picture, so she moves in with her working-class sister Ginger, played by Sally Hawkins, and she has to try and find a new life in San Francisco. Blue Jasmine was a critical success for Allen, and in particular for Blanchett, who won all the awards. It is also one of Alan's biggest box office earners. So is it really that good? Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast by me, the creator of the Woody Allen Pages website. This week, episode 15, we look at 2013's Blue Jasmine. How it was conceived, how it was made, and how it lives up to its reputation. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film first, then come back.
1: My plan is to start a new life out here, put everything that's happened behind me and start fresh. Go west. Was it Horace Greeley
0: who said that? The place where the Blue Jasmine story begins was the character of Jasmine. She is based on a story that Alan heard from his wife, Soon-Yi. This was during the global financial crisis around 2008, when lots of people were losing their fortunes and lots of bad people in the finance world were getting their comeuppance. One of those was Bernie Madoff, the head of one of the biggest Ponzi schemes ever, and arrested in 2008. He took money from investors to invest in nothing, essentially, and for some reason many people suggested that Jasmine was based on Ruth Madoff, Bernie's wife. Ruth Madoff is probably just a famous example of a woman whose rich husband was a crook. Whether she knew about her husband's fraud has been debated, but the Madoff story is interesting because of the scale. Madoff had made off with billions. Alan denies it, of course, often reiterating in interviews that the idea came from that Yi story and it was not about Ruth Madoff. But there are some similarities. Ruth Madoff had to move in with her family after her husband's crimes were exposed. They had sons who played an important part. But Bernie Madoff was alive when the film was made. Alan hasn't said much about who Jasmine is actually based on, just that it wasn't Ruth Madoff. He did something similar in 1978's Interiors, where he had heard one story and conjured up an entire family drama. Alan has taken snippets and stories he's heard and turned them into films many times before. He's a writer, and writers are always listening and always stealing. Still, there was a timely relevance to this story. But Jasmine's story, and Alan's take on it, is not torn from the pages of the news. Even with the financial crisis fresh in the mind, this isn't Alan taking you into a world you heard about from the headlines. It's not a look at fame and corruption close to home. Nope, it's Woody Allen. It all comes back to human nature. Alan takes a story that could have been hugely relevant to audiences with huge stakes and makes it a small human drama. What can you do? It's just how he sees the world. He just wants to explore characters. Another great character is Blanche DuBois, the lead character in the timeless play and later film, A Streetcar Named Desire, written by Tennessee Williams. And there's more than a few parallels between the story of Jasmine and the story of Blanche. Blanche was a well-to-do socialite who has to slum it and move in with her sister in a new city. But Alan only took a couple of those elements for his story. The sister and the new city, The key third character in the Williams story, the fiery Stanley Kowalski, the role made famous by Marlon Brando, is totally missing. This isn't a story about passion. Alan loves Tennessee Williams to the point of idolization. There's a similar starting point, but this story feels very different. The most Tennessee Williams-y aspect for me is the powder keg situations. Williams loves putting a lot of tense people into confined situations, but we will get to all of that. This film ends up being something that Alan has done before. The intense internal character study, usually with a female lead. Think of Marion in Another Woman as probably Alan's best example. The later Wonder Wheel is another, and he really digs into that person. And that person isn't a relatable hero at the center, say the lead character in Bullets Over Broadway or Midnight in Paris. We're not supposed to relate to Jasmine. This isn't the traditional hero's journey. She's a mystery that we're learning about. Our character study means all the heavy lifting is on one role. It's actually surprising on rewatch to notice that there's actually quite a few scenes without Jasmine. But it's clear that Alan put all his best ideas into Jasmine. It's easy for Alan to write a complex character. For him, it's just typing with his typewriter. Bringing such a role to life was always going to be the bigger challenge. And so we have to talk about Kate Blanchett. This film this story and the character of Jasmine wouldn't exist without her. Take the incredible scene where Jasmine first gets a telephone call from potential suitor Dwight. Blanchett or Jasmine steadies herself and plays a mess holding it together, coming across as elegant. Then, when the one-sided phone call is over, she breaks into tears. One-sided phone calls are always difficult with no one to bounce off but I can't begin to imagine what physical and emotional gymnastics Blanchard is doing to get that performance. The thing that Alan puts on the page, Blanchard brings to life.
1: Hello, how are you? No, 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 it's just some business I had to attend to. Oh, no, 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 that's fine. (laughs) Oh, I know how hectic things can get in the nation's capital. When? Uh, well, I'm actually meeting a client for uh, a drink in the Fairmont, so why don't you pick me up in the lounge? Great. No, no, no. Three is perfect. Okay, bye bye.
0: That phone scene happens in the middle of the film right after a long sequence where Chili comes in angry after finding out about Ginger and Al, and he rips the phone off the wall and slams the door. It's yet another complicated scene, complicated in terms of character with all their emotions and wants crossing over and clashing. It has built up from an earlier scene where Jasmine wants quiet to study, but she's bitter she has to do it at all. Chili and his friends watch TV and he is probably deliberately giving Jasmine a hard time, but he's also sitting his ways and he wants to enjoy his day. Ginger is stuck in the middle, keeping the peace, wondering why her life can't be better. This is the stuff of high drama. Characters, wants and obstacles. Everyone has an external and internal life. Alan has cooked a complicated script and the actors do the very hard job of making it look easy. Is it possible, without ruining any of your fun,
1: that you could lower the TV a bit?
0: Hey, Jasmine, why don't you stop working for a little
1: bit? Have a beer. Believe me, I wish I could. Well, what kind of work are you doing? I'm trying to um, work a computer, but it seems I have no aptitude for it. Hey, listen, I, just, I want you to know, I think it's great when a grown-up continues with their education. Not for nothing. Well, my my goal is to uh, study interior decorating online. Why don't you just go to decorator school. Well, I have to use my days to work and pay my way. That's how said it's not the money, it's the money. Yeah, okay, but you know life ain't all work and no play, right? I mean, Ginger says between work and school, you're cracking up. Hey, wouldn't you shut up? No, no. I'll admit it's it's been. Very trying, but I'm determined to make something of myself. So you don't like working with the dentist?
0: No, I do not. The tension in a character study is always, what will happen to this person? Where will Jasmine end up? And more importantly, how did the life they live and the choices they've made inform where they end up? Jasmine's story is ultimately a tragedy, but it is because of her own actions. Or was it fate? And will she be able to be strong and overcome that fate? That's the thing that keeps us glued to the film. At first, we feel sorry for Jasmine. She arrives in San Francisco a victim of circumstance. Throughout the film, there is an argument about how much she knew and how much she is to blame. At first, we are quite light on her until Alan starts piling on the sins. It's wonderful to see how Alan stacks up her awful behavior in a series of flashbacks. We go from seeing an innocent, serene lunch where Jasmine talks about how little she knows and how she will sign anything. She does it with a laugh too. And our compassion for her starts to dry. Just don't oh. file a joint tax return.
1: <laughs> <laughs> don't say that, I sign anything. I'm very trusting. Mm-hmm. the last words. Heard. It's called looking the other
0: way. By the middle of the film, she is taking Ginger and Augie's money. She brings them into one of Hal's deals. She knows Hal is not above board. We've seen this, and she does it anyway. Why? To show off? To be nice? In the end, she ends up hurting her sister and destroying her chance at happiness and probably ruining her marriage.
1: We always play the lottery, and and we never even get two numbers. Am I right?
0: Uh Uh-huh. But last week we hit it. We got 200,000 bucks.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. I thought I'd drop dead. That's great. I never <laughs> held that kind of money in my hands. I mean, ever. He I mean, was shaking when we won. Me? You had to see her. I had to tell her. This is a once in a lifetime. <laughs> Congratulations on your good yeah. luck. Yeah. He, he wants to begin a business. What do you think? Well, if you like, I think Hal could probably help you do better. Yeah? Uh, you know. You know, I'm no gambler. I mean, not with my one chance to... Hey, come on. We don't know the first thing about money, but he does. The first thing you gotta know is how to not give half your money to the government. (laughs) Look, I know there's taxes, but I mean, what can I do? There are ways.
0: You see, Huggy? You see?
1: Suppose I put you in a venture that was very low risk, but very high yield. I'm not talking about six or seven percent. I'm talking about 20%. Would that be profitable enough for you? He's developing a group of hotels in the Caribbean. I mean, not starting my own business.
0: Then, the final crime, when she betrays Hal. She doesn't spur into action because she wants to do the right thing. It's because she's going to lose her privileged life, and the fantasy that comes with it. She has been embarrassed, and life as she knows it is about to end. There's also the build-up to this scene. We know that there's a gap in the story that we've been told, and there's more to the downfall. The revelation ends up being the film's climax, And as an audience, we go back through the whole story thinking that Jasmine brought this onto herself. It's really interesting that in the script, Hal says that Jasmine is having a tantrum. Alan used that word, tantrum, in interviews, that adults have tantrums. And he wanted to look at that particular behaviour. With hot blood, Jasmine calls the FBI on her husband. Did she act recklessly? Would she have not done it if it was an hour later? It's a wonderful bit of ambiguity.
1: I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I don't know what I'm. What am I doing here? Okay, oh This is unacceptable. This is not. This is not going to happen. You're not going anywhere. This is unacceptable. You you're you're having a tantrum. Don't you touch me. me. You are having a tantrum. Don't you touch me. me. You're <laughs> having a tantrum. Stop. Stop.
0: <laughs> what am I doing? You've got here? to pull yourself Sorry. together, okay. Jasmine. This is a character study and ultimately a tragedy. But there has to be some potential way out of a tragedy. There has to be a chance that Jasmine can escape her terrible fate. And that ends up being Dwight. And the obstacle to getting there is herself. Constantly, Jasmine is her own enemy. There's no antagonist in this story. For Jasmine, it's all internal. Can she make it through a simple computing class and get a simple job? Can she hold it together enough to snare the dashing Dwight? Can she hold on to the menial job at a dentist's office of course she can't from a writing point of view alan subtly puts the challenges in jasmine's way but she doesn't rise to the challenge she remains petulant and privileged in the face of her changed life she can't let go time and time again alan makes it a flaw in her character she's not strong enough to build a new life she can't settle for something below her station she wears what's left of her fine clothes even when she has no money she flies first class even when she's broke. She lies to Dwight because she can't bear to admit the truth. She can't move on.
1: Should I have another drink? We're celebrating, right? Of yeah. Of oh, course. the flight was bumpy. Uh huh. I didn't need anything on the plane. Oh, the food was awful. Here it is. I mean, you'd think first class, right? <laughs> you flew first, first class? Oh, I don't know how anyone puts up with those airlines at all. Isn't first class a fortune? Yes, I was quite shocked. I thought you were tapped out. I'm worse than tapped out, baby. I run up some serious debts. So how'd you fly first class? I don't know, Ginger. I just did. All I meant was, if you've got no money, to go first class. You know me. I splurge from habit.
0: The film is about Jasmine, and the ensemble all serve the purpose of reflecting what Jasmine is going through. Alan surrounds Jasmine with past demons that come back to haunt her. Augie, Ginger's husband, turns up near the end of the film to burst a bubble when she's with Dwight. He even says it, that some people don't let go of the past so easily.
1: Let me tell you something, Jeanette, Jasmine, whatever it is you call yourself these days, some people, they don't put things behind so easily.
0: If you look at that comment of letting go, you can see how the characters almost neatly split into two groups. Those who have let go of the past and plan for the future, and those that don't. Ginger and Chili have plans. They aren't grand or glamorous, but they are the happiest people in the film. Augie can't let go, and neither can Jasmine. And they are the unhappiest people, and they have no future. Then there's Danny, Jasmine's son. He's a very minor but important role because he has also been able to let go of the past and he is finally looking forward to new happiness. But he's also Jasmine's judge. He's the only one who knows the full story. He's moving forward and he's leaving Jasmine behind. The moment I
1: did what I did, I regretted it.
0: I don't want to discuss it. The it's past, it's over. You can't take back that phone call.
1: I need you, Danny.
0: I don't want to see you Jasmine. I want the past, past. I, I, I've become a different person thanks to my wife. I'm off drugs. Just please don't spoil everything. Just get out of my life so I can move on. Almost the entire film is from Jasmine's point of view and when we leave her POV it's the weakest scenes in the film. Ginger gets a side story and it doesn't feel like it fits with the rest of the tragedy. I wonder if Alan was actually planning another of his films with two leads and two stories that look at some key themes from two angles. But Ginger's story of trying to get above her station doesn't quite take off for me. If she fell for some rich wanker, like a Hal type, it might have made the film stronger. As it is, her journey doesn't go very far. It doesn't help that the scenes with Al featuring Louis C.K. unconvincingly talking about audio production are weak. Ginger also features in the worst scene in the film. Ginger happens to look out the limo window and see Hal cheating on Jasmine with another woman at exactly the right time. It's a terrible plot contrivance and the kind of lazy writing that Alan is rightly slated for. But Alan follows that bad scene with a very good scene as Ginger struggles with whether she should tell Jasmine what she saw. And it sets up the rest of the film. Alan cares less for plot, he just wants to get to the drama. I'm not saying it makes this screenwriting shortcut all right. Plot is just not on Alan's mind when writing in this period. He cares about human feelings above all else. And all else be damned. Ginger.
1: What? What, what? what are we doing? We're playing charades? I mean, come on. Did you see something? Yeah. On the street, by accident.
0: I saw Hal kissing that brunette who was at the party. You saw Hal? Hal? Kiss Raylene. Raylene? There's also a bunch of threads about Jasmine and Ginger's childhood that I feel are never tied up. Like how they were adopted and competitive as kids. How Ginger ran away. How Jasmine changed her name. Alan, ever the Freudian, has considered parental influence in his characters. But we are left hanging and perhaps something was cut out. There was at least one scene featuring Jasmine and Ginger on a San Francisco cable car that was not included in the final film. What else is missing is a bad guy. There really isn't one. Hal, played by Alec Baldwin, is kind of a ghost throughout the film. We only see him in Jasmine's flashbacks, and it's interesting that we never see him as evil. Perhaps because we see him through Jasmine's eyes. But he's nothing but supportive and loving to her. We don't hiss at the scream when he comes on, even though we know he's a crook. I love how casually Alan throws away the revelation that Hal committed suicide. Hal's not around to be blamed. It's just Jasmine. Ginger said that your ex-husband did time, huh?
1: Yeah, he'd still be doing time if he didn't hang himself in his cell. Really, like what, with a belt? Well, it had to be a belt or a bedsheet. Could be a bedsheet. No, he managed to get a piece of rope. Plain rope. I guess you can get anything in prison if you got juice. Yeah, that's Some way to go, huh? Strangle yourself to death? No, it wasn't strangulation. When you hang yourself, your neck breaks. I wouldn't feel sorry for him. You hurt a lot of people. Oh yeah? Yeah, including me and Augie and her. Now a lot of people are under the misapprehension you strangle, but your neck snaps.
0: Okay, we got it. I'm not sure what Alan wants us to feel by the end of the film. I think he wants us to be torn. He doesn't seem to be passing a hard judgment on Jasmine, yet he doesn't make us feel like she deserved better. Even her second last scene... She lies to her sister, telling her she's moving to Vienna. It takes away our sympathy for her. And all the while, Chili and Ginger acutely fighting over a last slice of pizza at In Love. We know who we want to hang out with. We leave Jasmine on the bench in the park on her own. I'm not sure I'm supposed to think good riddance or that's too bad. I certainly feel pity. And it's a memorable, shocking moment. It's as powerful as any ending that Alan has written.
1: playing on the vineyard. Blue moon. I used to know the words. I know the words.
0: Those are all a Throughout the film, there's plenty of great writing moments. I find the tone very interesting. This film isn't heavy, there's actually a fair bit of humour here and there. Take the opening scene where Alan plays with audience expectations while giving us generous portions of exposition. Jasmine spills her life story to a person that we later find out is just a stranger. It's almost a punchline, but whilst it's a clever bit of writing, we also get a lot of information. We learn about how, and we learn about her. Also this scene turns out to be a lot darker when we get to the end of the film. Jasmine was disturbed and deluded all along. An incredible introduction that does several things at once.
1: You know, oh, there's my family. It was really nice oh, talking to oh, you. Oh, I, I, I'll call you, maybe for lunch. I, I don't have your number.
0: What's that woman you were talking
1: to? I was sitting next to her on the plane. She was just talking to herself. I thought she said something to me. I said, what? But she couldn't stop babbling about her
0: life. Another great scene that does several things is Jasmine taking Ginger's kids to a meal. It's delicious that Jasmine has her most honest moment in front of Ginger's confused kids. Alan uses this scene to really lay out what he's trying to say in this film through Jasmine, but no one is listening to her. If only she had someone proper to talk to, and not just two kids. It's actually interesting that Jasmine is a character that needs therapy. Yet Woody Allen, the man who put therapy on screen, doesn't give Jasmine someone to talk to. What strikes me about Blue Jasmine, from a script point of view, is the pace of the film. Sometimes Alan's dramas can be slow, but here he matches the pace and timing of his comedies with the script. It helps that the structure is two narratives. There's the present day as we rush forward and we see Jasmine struggle with her new life, and we wonder if she will make it. And the other is the flashbacks, and when we move forward through those, we wonder how this perfect life fell apart. Alan cuts between the two before either one gets boring. I love all the writerly stuff, like the transitions. Ginger mentions French perfume at one point and it triggers a flashback for Jasmine to when she discovered How was having an affair with a French au pair. Or how Alan uses things falling out of Jasmine's handbag as a final bit of shame when she jumps out of a car, something is done before to great effect in Husbands and Wives. Those little details are wonderfully drawn. It's that pace and the occasional lightness that makes this film so likeable. It probably helps to make it a huge success. Sometimes Allen's dramas seem like lectures, and the crowd-pleasing fun of some of his comedies disappears. Here, he finds the middle ground, a character drama that moves along like a crowd-pleaser. Of course, this is Woody Allen, and the whole film is dripping with philosophy. For me, this film is about trauma. It's about living with trauma, that you did something horrible. And how to move past that trauma and survive if you can. How some people can't move past it and are weakened and they crack. And in the end, Jasmine succumbs to her own trauma. So despite not being a comedy, it's the same old Woody Allen theme. The idea that you need to fight for any moment of happiness in this hard life. He's managed, yet again, to say the same thing in a different way. I didn't just shop and lunch and go to matinees.
1: You know, I ran charities for poor people. I ran, you know, raised money for museums and schools. You know, with wealth comes responsibilities. I wasn't just some mindless consumer like so many of my so-called friends. <laughs> Though I won't say I dislike buying pretty clothes. Tip big, boys. Tip big because you get good service, and they count on tips. You know, someday, when you come into great wealth, you must remember to be generous.
0: Mom said you used to be okay, but you got crazy. Yeah,
1: and then you talk to yourself. Well, there's only so
0: many traumas a person can withstand until they take to the streets and start screaming. Woody Allen spent the last eight years before this making seven films in Europe, When he did return to America, he decided to have his film set primarily outside of his beloved New York. It was a good idea. His European films had given his work a fresh edge. Shooting elsewhere in America did the same thing, and he chose one of his favorite other cities in America, San Francisco. Alan chose San Francisco as the setting for his film in the same way he chooses European settings for his films. It's all about where he and his family wants to spend the summer during the production. In his typically jokey style, he said that Jasmine's sister could have lived anywhere, but he could not. Some of Alan's European films, like Match Point, were written for an American setting and he just changed it to London. But Alan felt that this was an American story and couldn't make this in Europe. Rightly so. This is a kind of wealth scandal that is very American. The way American society has no social safety net and people are left with no health care and close to poverty and it's all on show right here. It's very much the thirst of the American dream, and a very American sort of greed. Alan has a lot of love for San Francisco. He made his first film there, 1969's Take the Money and Run, and the 1972 film version of his play, Play It Again Sam, was also set there, and where he starred. Alan spent a lot of time there when he was a comedian, and fell in love with the city. It's a hip, arty, bohemian city that suits Alan. Although that city has changed a lot since this film was set there with the tech boom, that Jasmine ends up homeless in a city that would become very known for its homelessness problem is bitterly ironic. Alan shows his affection for San Francisco in this film. It's not the glorified tourism postcard of films like To Rome With Love, but he shows much of San Francisco's colour and loveliness, from the bustling Chinatown to the expensive houses along the bay. And of course, you can't put San Francisco on screen without showing the Golden Gate Bridge. Landmarks are great, but we don't actually spend a lot of time outside. A lot of this story is set in apartments, shops, and hotel rooms. It's fairly self-contained, and the most interesting set is Ginger's apartment. It really feels like home. It's run down and full of stuff. All those interiors for me make it feel like this film could work quite nicely as a play.
1: The place is homey. <laughs> Are you kidding me? No, I mean, it's got a very what, it's got a casual charm. Oh God, knock it off, Jasmine.
0: <laughs> the big calling card of the film was Kate Blanchett working with Woody Allen, a huge movie star and acclaimed as one of the best actors of her generation. The whole buzz of this film was Blanchett taking on a complex, awards-worthy Woody Allen role. Alan is famous for writing some of the most challenging roles for women in all of cinema and now it's Blanchett's turn to have a bat. Blanchett had actually starred as Blanche Duvoir in a 2009 stage production of A Streetcar Named Desire just four years earlier, so she likely brought that energy to the role. Blanchett also looked at Ruth Madoff footage to inform her of how she acted as Jasmine. I'm not sure if Alan ever considered anyone else, but I imagine not. This really seemed like a situation where if he couldn't find the right lead, he probably would have moved on to a different script. I can't just do some mindless job. I was forced to take a
1: job selling shoes on Madison Avenue. So humiliating. Friends, I'd had dinner parties. Our apartment came in and I waited on them. I mean, do you have any idea what that's like? No. One minute you're hosting women, and the next you're measuring their shoe size and fitting them. Erica Bishop came into the store. She saw me. was so embarrassed for me. She slipped out thinking I didn't see her. I saw you, Erica!
0: There was a couple of casting could-have-beens. Michael Emerson, at the time writing high as a key character in the TV series Lost, was cast as Dr Flicker, which was ultimately played by Michael Stuhlbarg. Bradley Cooper was initially cast as Dwight, then ultimately played by Peter Sarsgaard. Both roles ended up being small, although interesting. Both of the men in the final film did a fine job, and probably the men who were announced and missed out would have done a fine job too. Louis C.K. had been considered for the role of Augie, which ultimately went to Andrew Diceclay. Alan likes casting against types sometimes, and for some reason really wanted a comedian in this role, even though Augie is quite serious. Louis C.K. is kind of fine in his partner's Al, but Andrew Dice Clay is wonderful. He's just orgy from the start. The hard years are all over his face and his posture. It actually kicked off a bit of a revival in Clay's acting career.
1: You know her name too? <laughs> My God, she gets around.
0: Oh, we were introduced, come on. You got
1: nothing to worry about. Yeah. Nobody could ever take your place. <laughs> yeah, believe come me, on. I wasn't thinking she'd look at you. <laughs> Yeah, nobody would ever look at me, right? That's right. You looked at me. Yeah, once was a mistake.
0: This was Sally Hawkins' second film with Alan after Cassandra's dream. Alan liked working with her, even though she was a little thankless in that role. More likely, Alan saw Hawkins in Happy-Go-Lucky or any of the other wonderful roles since she last worked with Alan. She's done so much work with Mike Lee, the British director, who creates characters for his actors to improvise upon for his films. So she starts it from a place of great naturalism, there's a lot of this film that feels like a play, and Hawkins in particular is suited to this. Hawkins gets her own one-sided telephone conversation scene too, and she's great at it.
1: Hello? Yes, yeah, Al there. Al Munsinger, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know he works in the audio department, yeah. Yeah, I'll hold. Hello? Al Munsinger, yes. Al, where the hell are you? What? What I don't I don't get it. Why can't you come? Who found out what? Who's Ellen? <laughs> oh. Yeah, I I didn't understand you
0: had a wife. Bobby Cannavale is never less than brilliant, and even with a small role here, he's great. He just exudes a natural energy, but when he dials into anger, he's genuinely scary. The scene where he rips the phone out is an acting tour de force. He's a huge Woody Allen fan and actually played Allen's role in a live read of Hannah and her sisters once. He even considered starring in the Bullets Over Broadway musical, but it didn't work out.
1: When the hell are you moving out? Get out! Hey, you know what? I'm sorry I don't come from Park Avenue, but I don't steal all the people's money. Hey, I'm not some lying jailbird. Get out, God, call it God! She doesn't care about you. She's a phony. Get she out! never not care about you until she fucking needed Get out you. Jenny. <sighs> <First. laughs>
0: Alec Baldwin, in his third film with Alan falls into a similar basket an utter pro who delivers every time he doesn't get much to do and Alan could have cast any of hundreds of random middle aged men but Baldwin is again a natural and he makes you see Hal even though you know it's Alec Baldwin. In a way he's playing the straight man to Blanchett there's plenty of scenes of Hal and Jasmine together but the camera stays on Jasmine. He's Blanchett's Ginger Rogers here. The dance partner who lets the other one shine but could not shine without them. Lisette and I are in love. What? What?
1: Are you crazy? I'm sorry, but I need you to hear what I'm saying to you. Lisette and I are in love. What does that mean? What does that stupidity even mean? It means that we are making plans for the future together. I'm sorry, I'm... I'm having trouble understanding. I know this, this comes as a shock, but I have to be honest with you. You oh, oh. wanna be honest? That's the biggest joke of all. I've had casual flirtations in the past, but they didn't mean anything to me until now. This is different. Are you out of your mind? She is a teenager, for Christ's sake. She's no pair.
0: The cinematographer was Javier Aguisarobe, returning to work with Alan after Vicky Cristina Barcelona. This was his second and last film with Alan. During this period, Alan's first choice for cinematographer was Darius Conji, who shot the two Alan films before this and the two Alan films after this. When Conji wasn't available, Agisarobe took the spot behind the camera. The film looks lovely. There's plenty of lovely shots of San Francisco. I love the neighbourhood where Ginger lives, contrasted with the boring, blander, upper-class life that we see in Jasmine's flashbacks. The film isn't just Alan's usual warm yellows and reds. There's greens and there's shadows. One of the best lit scenes in the film, for me, is with Danny in the guitar shop. There's only a couple of lights behind him and some soft lights in front of him. It feels like classic Gordon Willis with its use of darkness. The way the light falls on Danny's face is gorgeous and creates an intimacy when these two characters need to reveal some family secrets. But on the whole, I feel like the cinematography is nice, but not much else. I think Alan is getting a little bit boring when it comes to the camera, and he would soon shake that up. The costumes also helped to tell the story. The jacket that Jasmine wears is Chanel, and it was a gift for the production. At retail, it costs almost as much as the entire costume budget. But for a Woody Allen film, and to be worn by Kate Blanchett, Chanel would lend out a jacket. And it's an important plot point because Dwight picks Jasmine out because of her fashion. Allen regular Susie Benzinger handled the costumes. The rest of the crew were also regulars, Another sign that it was business as usual for Alan. Juliet Taylor casting, Alyssa Lepselta editing, Santa Laquasta on production design, and Alan's sister Liddy Arison and Helen Robin produced the film. Outside of last minute shuffling of the cast, the production was pretty straightforward. There was no massive reshoots or characters being cut out of the story.
1: I saw you in the other room before. I was hoping i get a chance to meet you. Wow,
0: well, hope I don't shatter your illusion.
1: You have great style. Do I? Chanel belt, Hermes bag, Oh! Uh, Vivier shoes. Vivier? Oh my goodness, do you work in the fashion fashion industry? Uh, no, but my former wife, was. she worked at a fashion magazine. Right. She passed away last year. Oh, oh I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, what do you do? Nothing as glamorous as women's fashion. I work in the State Department. Well, no, that's, that's, that's glamorous. In the
0: diplomatic corps. For me, this film doesn't have the strongest musical character. The most used music is Alan's usual American jazz. If you get the commercially released soundtrack, it doesn't hold together. It's a mixed bag. The opening credits song is Back of Town Blues, performed by Louis Armstrong, written by Armstrong and Louis Russell. It's an interesting, energetic choice. Alan, of course, loves Louis Armstrong, but I think Alan basically chose the song for the title once again. Jasmine moves to the back of town and has the blues. Get it? In the scene where Ginger and Augie discover Hal is cheating, Alan chooses to soundtrack that scene with the song A Good Man is Hard to Find, performed by Lizzie Miles and Sharky's Kings of Dixieland. Also very on the nose. If there was any sort of particular thread, it's King Oliver. He was Louis Armstrong's mentor and has several tracks in the film, but it hardly makes the film feel like there's a consistent score or musical character. Worse than the same old jazz is the terrible production music used in some of the party scenes. Modern music costs money, and one of the reasons Alan uses old jazz albums is because they usually cost less to license. The cost to license, say, a Daft Punk track for a party scene would probably make up a healthy part of the film's budget, let alone music budget. But still, the production music is terrible, and I hate it. What is lovely is the use of Blue Moon, the song that is playing when Jasmine and Hal met. It's another nice script idea that Jasmine has a song for her and Hal, and that the song is one of the chapters in her own story that she has elevated to mythical status. Alan also uses the song in flashbacks and alludes to it in the film's title. Blue Moon was written by Richard Rogers and Lawrence Hart in 1934, A song that has been covered hundreds of times by artists as diverse as Frank Sinatra or the Cowboy Junkies. It's one of many, many classics by Rogers and Hart, and Alan has used their songs in many of his films. Hannah and Her Sisters, Manhattan Murder Mystery, and Cafe Society in particular. For Alan, Rogers and Hart is the pinnacle of romantic songwriting. They aren't smart asses like Cole Porter, nor did they have the musical complexity of Gershwin. They were right in the middle popular romantic music for the masses blue moon is still a beautiful song at its heart it's about someone being saved a lonely unhappy person who gets rescued by love of course it's used with bitter irony here in the end no one comes to save Jasmine the version here is performed by Connell Fowkes the piano player in Alan's jazz band and his go-to man for twinkly keys in this period And sometimes I wish that Allen used a piano score or something different from jazz for this entire film. I'm not sure what that jazz brings to this story. All it does is to telegraph to me that this is a Woody Allen film. Jasmine was released on the 23rd of August 2013 and played many of the film festivals around the world. It's kind of how you get to win an award. You do the whole film festival circuit and you do all the interviews so the industry can vote for you. Kate Blanchett must have done 300 interviews for this film. It helped because Alan did like three. The distributor in the US was Sony Pictures Classics. The fifth of seven films they would distribute for Alan. It's a run marked by huge successes and this was one of them. Blue Jasmine did really well. It was just a perfect store on a number of levels. Firstly, Kate Blanchett. She hadn't really taken a starring role in 5 or 6 years. I imagine a lot of people went to see the film without knowing Alan was involved. But for Alan fans, this felt like a new purple patch. Midnight in Paris 2 years earlier was a huge success. Vicky Cristina Barcelona was still in the recent memory. And for most people, they don't even hear about the flops like You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger. So Alan fans were ready, and he had a lot of new converted fans. And then there was the critical acclaim. It was just loved by the critics. Everyone hailed Blanchett. The script was lean and controlled. The film was well made. It wasn't up for Best Picture, but Alan did get another screenplay nomination at the Academy Awards. Blanchett really swept every possible award she could win. Academy Awards, Golden Globes, BAFTAs, and more. And it wasn't just her. Sally Hawkins was nominated for many awards, including her first Academy Award nomination. For me, this is a solid entry in the Woody Allen catalogue. It's an incredibly focused single story. There's so much that's great about this film, and all of it is focused around Jasmine. But there's a couple of rough parts in the script, like when we leave Jasmine. It's a minor point, but I don't really care when we leave Jasmine's story. So lucky, there's very little of it. The filmmaking for me lacks flair in places. The film looks typically gorgeous. The sets and costumes look typically great. The music and the editing is all typical and serviceable. Maybe I've seen too many Woody Allen films, but it doesn't feel like Allen had a lot of ideas about making this into a cinematic experience. It comes back to how much this feels like it could be a play. Lucky then that the cast was so great. It's a tour de force by Kate Blanchett. She's great in many things, but this is the best that I've ever seen her. She's actually what makes this film special for me. Not yet another really good Woody Allen script. The headline for this film remains seeing one of the greatest actors of a generation work with Allen. It's like hearing Hendrix cover Dylan. In terms of Allen's dramas, this is one of his best. In a way, his dramas can be split in two. He loves his character studies, like September or Another Woman, and he likes his thrillers, like Match Point and Cassandra's Dream. So if you take out the thrillers from that drama category, this is clearly one of his best character dramas. It's full of ideas, color and pace. It's always moving along. Another indie filmmaker would have made this a two hour film and really shown off more of the wonderful acting. But Alan shaves this film to the point where there's no fat here at all. He's brutal and it works. This film got a lot of extra attention off the back of Midnight in Paris and Cate Blanchett's awards which is great because it deserves it. I don't know how often I want to revisit Jasmine's misery in the years to come. It's always hard to assess Alan's most recent work without the luxury of time and distance. But this is clearly one of Alan's best films of the 2010s. And finally, recognition for Alan that he can make a critically acclaimed drama. Some fun facts about Blue Jasmine. I'm not sure why, but there's a lot of spices here. I mean, in the names, Jasmine, Ginger, Chili, I assume it's a bit of writing flair and not coincidence. It adds to how the film is its own little world. And let's talk more about A Streetcar Named Desire. Alan made fun of the film in Sleeper in a great scene with Diane Keaton doing a Brando impression. Alec Baldwin had appeared on stage as Stanley Kowalski and in a 1995 film version. Bobby Cannavale had signed up for a new version in 2020 before the COVID pandemic hit. And finally, this film got almost universal acclaim in all corners except one. Dentists were not flattered by the depiction of Dr. Flicker. Enough that some group of dentists actually sent out a press release decrying the portrayal of dentists in Allen's films and films in general. They even had a couple of dentists speak to the press and do some interviews. Lucky that the Association of Ponzi Scheme Criminals didn't come across this film. Alan used the name of Dr Flicker before. He's Alvy's doctor as a boy in Annie Hall. Look, I'm,
1: I'm concentrating on school, OK? And getting a job. That's perfect. Right, He knows his dentist. No, I have no interest in being a receptionist.
0: Well, what did you have in mind? Running a bank? Thanks for listening to this episode. What did you think of Blue Jasmine? Is it a modern classic? Is it as good as Alan's classic stuff? Let me know at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. Or if you just have any questions that you want to ask me about Alan or the podcast or anything else, I will be putting the best questions into a QA and a episode at the end of the season. So, if you got to this point, uh, I talk about how you can support us. One of the easiest ways to support me is buy me a coffee. That's right, there's an easy, protected way for you to send money to me to help with the production of this podcast, which takes ages. I've already gotten lots of coffees, (laughs) lots of people buying me coffees through that service uh, this season, and I totally use those coffees, those actual coffees, for making this podcast. Link in the description. There's also the Patreon, where you can get some extra stuff, and there's the books and the podcast artwork that you can buy. Links to all this stuff is in the description, and when you get to this point, I'm basically going to highlight a different thing every single time. Otherwise, the important thing is to spread the word. I'm really trying hard to make these podcasts timeless and they're always going to be there no matter what happens. And I've been really touched that a few people have gotten in contact who have just discovered the podcast and are starting at episode one and watching along. I really hope for new Alan fans when they discover Alan's films that this podcast is there for them to give them almost like a little bit of a film commentary. So please spread the word and tell a friend. You can also follow me on social media everywhere on at WoodyAlanPages. And of course, there's the website where there's not that much going on in Woody Allen land, but there is still that book coming out on the first week of June. We'll cover that and much more and anything else that happens. And hopefully the production of a new film. Check it all out on WoodyAllenPages.com. Next week, we look at a film that horrified Allen's studio when he showed it to them. Thanks for listening.
1: Who do I have to sleep with around here to get a stolly martini with a twist of lemon?